1906, a man named Albert Schweitzer published a book entitled The Quest of the Historical Jesus. He surveyed many of the biographies, the lives of Jesus that had been written during the 19th century, and he came to a surprising conclusion. He suggested that as all these historians peered down the well of history, looking for the real Jesus, all they found was their own image smiling back at them. They were looking for the real Jesus, but all they found was their own reflection because they had fashioned Jesus according to their own values and tastes, their economic views and political leanings. He even joked that if I wanted to figure out who a person really was, what was most important to them, what really made them tick, I would just ask them to write their own life of Jesus. Now, isn't that so true? This is how we've ended up with so many different competing images of Jesus out there. So was Jesus a stern ascetic or a peace-loving hippie? Was he a Marxist revolutionary or the founder of modern business? Was Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? See, we're all susceptible to this temptation. We craft Jesus into our own image. And therefore, you should stop and ask yourself the question, if I were to write my own life of Jesus, would that Jesus challenge me? Or would that Jesus endorse everything I'm already thinking and doing and saying? See, that's the real test as to whether or not you're encountering the authentic Jesus or merely creating a figment of your own imagination. Now, we're engaged in a series in which we are seeking to explore the authentic Jesus as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. We're trying to figure out who he is, what he did, why he matters. Now, here's the interesting thing. Despite the fact that there's all these competing images of Jesus out there in the world, if you were to ask, what was Jesus' central defining message? What was Jesus' message? Even the most critical of scholars would agree with the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. That was Jesus' central message. But what did that mean? So today what I'd like us to do is turn to Mark chapter 1 and consider three things. What the gospel is not, what the gospel is, and why it matters. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open a Bible to Mark chapter 1. You'll find this printed on page 836 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll, I'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the hired servants, and followed him. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, first, let's consider what the gospel is not. When Jesus launches his public career, he begins by proclaiming the gospel of God. 
But what did he mean by that? We know that it has something to do with Jesus, but we're not always altogether sure what. Some people think of Jesus as a religious guru who was offering a new path of spirituality, or others think of him as a great moral teacher who was presenting new ethical instruction. Some think of him as a philosopher who was proposing a new theory of life, or others think of Jesus as an activist who was fighting for a new structure to society. Now, it's true that the gospel has something to say about all those things. It speaks to spirituality and ethics and philosophy and the social order. But the gospel, strictly speaking, is none of these things. Now, here's another common misconception. I bet that a lot of people, including Christians, I bet a lot of Christians think that the gospel is the minimum required set of facts specifically about the death and the resurrection that you need to believe in order to go to heaven when you die. So if you believe this minimum required set of facts, then God will forgive you and take you to heaven when you die. So in a sense, the gospel becomes our get-out-of-jail-free card. If you've ever played Monopoly, you know one of the best cards you could receive would be the get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's how we think of the gospel. When I was in college, one day I got in the car and drove to go visit my grandmother, and I'm sorry because I'm about to shatter your image of your pastor, but I was speeding, and I got pulled over by a state trooper, and he asked me who I was and where I was going so fast, and I explained I was a student at Princeton, and I was going to visit my grandmother. I must have figured, well, he can't be all that bad. But he takes my uh, license and registration, goes back to the patrol car. He comes back a few minutes later, and he says, I tell you what, I'm not going to give you a ticket, but I want you to do me a favor. My brother is a police officer at Princeton. He works for public safety. So when you get back to campus, I want you to go find my brother, tell him what happened, and then ask him, what can I do to make your life easier? He said, and I'm going to call my brother in a week's time to see if you did it. And if you don't, I'll know. So I go to visit my grandmother, come back to campus, go to the public safety office, find this officer, explain to him what happened, and then I ask him, what can I do to make your life easier? And of course, he just starts laughing, and he says, well, you do realize that my brother saved you not only a lot of money, but points on your license. Now, thankfully, he did not ask me to do anything to make his life easier. All he said was, go and sin no more. But you see, that was it. And I got off the hook. I did what I was supposed to do, and then I got out of jail free. And I never had to deal with that police officer again. And you know, that's how people think about the Christian gospel. If you believe the right things, then you'll be let off the hook You'll get out of jail free. You can go to heaven when you die. And otherwise, you don't have to do anything with Jesus. But you see, that's a massive misconception. The late philosopher Dallas Willard would talk about this as a gospel of sin management. A gospel of mere sin management. But it's not the real thing. And it can take a variety of different forms. A, a gospel of mere sin management can take a personal or a social form. It can take a conservative or a liberal form. So, for example, if you're a more conservative type, you might say, well, the gospel is you have to believe the right things. And if you believe the right things, then God will forgive you and take you to heaven when you die, leaving the rest of your life here and now unchanged. You don't have to deal with Jesus ever again as soon as you get that card, as soon as you punch your ticket. 
Or if you're a more progressive person, you might say, well, you have to do the right things. You have to stand up for the oppressed. You have to fight for justice because that's what Jesus came to do, and that's why he died. He died to bring freedom and opportunity to more and more people. He came to establish justice, and he was never raised from the dead, but he lives on, he lives on, but only in the sense that we carry on his mission in the world. So you either have to believe the right things or you have to do the right things, but in both cases, we've distorted the actual gospel because we have made it about merely the removal of personal or social sins. We've reduced the gospel and the message of salvation to the mere level of ethics, pursuing personal morality or social justice. But in both cases, the focus is on what you must do. You either have to believe the right things or you have to do the right things rather than a focus on what Jesus has done for you. It's all about you, not him. And what's missing, of course, is any sense that you might enter into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus that utterly changes your life here and now, not in the distant future. And what is missing is any sense that Jesus' mission might be so much larger than merely getting you to do or to believe the right things. So if that is what the gospel is not, what is it? What is the real thing? Well, let me suggest three ideas. The gospel is proclamation, promise, and power. See, first of all, the gospel is a proclamation. Notice that John the Baptist's arrest and imprisonment is the cue for Jesus to begin his public ministry. And that's our first clue. As soon as John is arrested, Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel of God. So the gospel is a proclamation. That word gospel is the word euangelion in Greek. You, the prefix you means good. Angelion means message or news. A eulogy is a good word. Euphoria is a good feeling. Europe is a good rope. Okay, just making sure you're paying attention. Euangelion is good news, a good message. And you see, in the ancient world, that term, euangelion, was a technical term to announce news of an event of life-changing, epoch-making significance. Not just small affairs, but life-changing, epoch-making significance, like the rise of a new king or the, the news of an important victory. So, for example, archaeologists have actually found an inscription from 9 B.C., which describes the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And in this inscription, Caesar Augustus is likened to a god. The inscription reads, The birthday of the god was for the whole world the beginning of the gospel through him. So you see, a gospel, first and foremost, is a proclamation of life-changing news. But what the scriptures are telling us is that the greatest news the world has ever heard is not the arrival of Caesar Augustus and his kingdom. No, the greatest news the world has ever heard is the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom. But what I want to underscore here is that the gospel as proclamation is good news rather than good advice. And so think about the difference. If, if I were to lean across the table from you and say, listen, 
I've got some really good advice for you. What are you expecting me to say? You're expecting me to tell you something that you need to do. And of course, this might benefit you in some way. If it is good advice, it will probably be for your good. But there is a sort of take it or leave it quality to advice. It might be the result of nothing more than my own personal subjective opinion. But regardless, the onus is on you to do it. But if, on the other hand, I sit across the table from you and I say, listen, I've got some really good news, that creates an altogether different expectation in your mind. You're not expecting me to tell you something to do. Rather, you're expecting me to tell you something that has happened. And if it's good news, it means that something has happened that fundamentally changes your situation for the better. Now, there might be a way in which you need to respond to that. For example, if I tell you, you've just been accepted into college, or if I tell you, we're going to offer you the job, well, then you've got to do something. You've got to show up for class. You've got to come in for that first day of work. But the point is that the news has already been decided. Something has already happened that fundamentally changes your situation. And the fact that the gospel is good news rather than good advice emphasizes not what you do for God, but rather what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you. And I think the problem is that many people assume that Christianity really is just good advice. It's giving you advice about how to live your life or how to become a better person or how to be a better Christian or how to change society. And it is true, as a friend of mine will point out, that Christianity does contain good advice. And if you follow that advice, it will make a difference in your life. It probably will make the world a better place. And therefore, we neglect that advice at our peril. But the gospel at its core is not good advice, it's good news. It's not about what you must do for God. Rather, it's about what he has done for you. And that's what changes everything. But what exactly has God done? Well, notice Jesus proclaims the gospel of God by saying, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. What he's telling us is that history has now been fulfilled. That our deepest longings and aspirations have now been fulfilled, whether we realize it or not. Something that had been promised long ago has now been accomplished. It's been actualized. And what is that? Despite our rebellion and failure, God promised that he would come to rescue us from the down drag of sin and evil. And yes, he would forgive us for the things that we'd done in the past so that he might reconcile us in relationship to himself. The gospel is not less than forgiveness, but it's so much more because God has not only come to reconcile us in relationship to himself, but to restore the whole world. He's not just giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, God has come in order to live with us, to live in us, to reign over us, to restore us in relationship to himself and to each other, and then to put right everything that had ever gone wrong in order to bring about a whole new world. See, that's the promise, and that is what God has done. You could never do that on your own, which shows us that the good news is not only news rather than advice, but it's also a message of grace rather than merit. This salvation it's not something that we could achieve through our own efforts. We can only receive it as a gift. So the gospel is a proclamation. Secondly, it is a promise. But then finally, it is a power. Notice he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. 
or better translated, the rule of God, the reign of God, the power of God is now at hand. It's here. It's drawn close. It's open and available to anybody. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that the the power and the presence of the kingdom is now here in the person of the king, and his name is Jesus. The power of God is, is now here. It's available to you. You can tap into it, and that is what fundamentally changes the world in which we live. There's now an altogether different way of being human that is available to you. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says that the gospel doesn't merely demonstrate power or reveal power or give power or possess power. No, he says it is. It is the power of God. When the message is announced and received, it lifts you up and it changes and transforms things. It changes your words and your actions, your values and your commitments, your priorities, your relationships. It changes everything. And if it hasn't changed you, then you haven't really experienced it. The power of God has now been unleashed in the world in and through Jesus. Dallas Willard talked about how he grew up in a very rural part of southern Missouri. And as a kid, he said, the only electricity that was available to us came in the form of lightning. Power lines didn't come into his town until he was a senior in high school. But when electricity was brought to that town, a whole new life was available to people. But some people preferred the old ways. They liked their kerosene lamps. But if you wanted to take advantage of this new power that had drawn near, that was now at hand, well, then you had to rearrange your whole house and learn to rely on that power. And in a similar way, in and through Jesus, the power of God has now drawn near. But if we want to tap into it, we have to rearrange our whole lives and rely on him. So the gospel is proclamation, it's promise, and it's power. But why does all this matter? If Jesus announced the good news that God's power has now been unleashed in the world, well, then that means it requires a response from us. When Jesus announces the gospel of God, he's not merely issuing an invitation. No, he is issuing you a summons. He's issuing a summons. Think of the parallel. If a herald in the ancient world started running from town to town, announcing that Octavian Augustus had defeated Mark Antony, and now he was the sole ruler over the Roman Empire, The herald would not run from one village square to another saying, well, if you would like to try out the experience of living under a Caesar, might I suggest Caesar Augustus? And in a similar way, when Jesus proclaims the gospel, he's not saying, well, if you'd like to experience a new kind of spirituality, do you want to try me out? In other words, by proclaiming the gospel, Jesus isn't offering a suggestion He's not giving you an optional way of viewing reality. This is reality. This is reality. And you have to get in line with it. So he's not offering an invitation. No, he is issuing a summons. And that's why he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
But here's another place where I think we all have misconceptions, both Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers. We all have massive misconceptions when it comes to the word repent. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word repent, this is what I picture. I, I, I picture a, a street preacher in Times Square wearing a sandwich board that says, repent, the end is nigh. Right, and what's the idea? Well, you've got to change your life. You've got to amend your ways. You've got to clean up your act or else. But that is a massive misconception because as a result of that, it leads us to think that repentance is for bad people or repentance is for good people who sometimes do bad things. In other words, if you're a bad person, well, then, of course, you've got to repent. You've got to change your ways. You've got to amend your way of life. Or if you're a good person, but you screw up on occasion, well, then you need to repent. But otherwise, a good person has no reason to ever repent. You just keep on doing what you're doing. You just keep on living your life. But that is completely wrong. If that's your view of what it means to repent, then you don't get it at all. Because that will lead you to think that the purpose of Christianity is to make nasty people nice or to make somewhat nice people even nicer. But the purpose of Christianity is not to make you nice. It is to make you new. And that's why C.S. Lewis included a chapter in his book, Mere Christianity, entitled, Nice People or New Men. The purpose of Christianity is not to make nasty people nice or somewhat nice people even nicer, but all people, whether they're nasty or nice, new. The purpose of Christianity is not to make you nasty, not to make you nice, it's to make you new. Now, here's the thing. I think in, in most of our minds, whether consciously or subconsciously, we have a scale. We create a scale in our mind from nasty to nice. And at one end of the scale, we've got the nice people. These are the people who, they're not perfect, but they're basically moral and ethical. They're honest and hardworking. They're people of integrity. They want to do the right thing. So these are the kids at school who not only get good grades, but they volunteer to do community service. Or these are the people at work who are not only great leaders, but they volunteer to mentor younger colleagues. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the nasty people, right? They're selfish. They're sort of mean-spirited. These are the, the kids at school that are the bullies, or the mean girls, they like to put people down, they cheat on their final exams, or these are the people at work who are so self-focused, so self-engrossed that they take out their aggression on everybody else and, and they're cutthroat, they're mean-spirited, they're just in it for themselves. And they don't know how to control their emotions, you know, they blow up at the smallest little thing. So you got the, the spectrum of, of nasty to nice, and, and here's the thing, is there could be a person who's not a Christian at all, doesn't believe in God, and yet you look at their life and whew, they are an eight or a nine on that, on that scale. And then you've got another person who maybe recently became a Christian, but then you look at their life and you say, this person, sorry, it, this person's no more than a three or a four. And isn't that what creates confusion in people's minds? They would say, if you call yourself a Christian, you've got to at least be a six or a seven on the niceness scale. Don't even talk about Christianity if that's not the case. But you see, the only real difference between people on the high end of the scale or the low end of the scale is the respectability of their sins. You know, the person at the high end of the scale, well, maybe they had a, a more positive upbringing or maybe by temperament they just have a sunnier disposition. 
But above all, the people at the high end of the scale, they've learned to control the vices that usually get you into trouble in life, and especially in your relationships with other people. But you can't see underneath the surface. You don't see the, the pettiness, the materialism, the snobbishness, the racism. You can't see behind closed doors. You don't know if they're dealing with any kind of secret addiction. You don't know what their sexual practices are or how they use their money. You can't see the pride. You can't see the greed. You can't see the ulterior motives for the reason why they do the things that they do. So the only difference really is the respectability of their sins, whereas people on the, on the low end of the scale, well, they haven't learned to do that. And so they, they just show their flaws on the surface. You can see all those unrespectable sins. But at the end of the day, whether you're on the high end or the low end of the nasty to nice scale, really doesn't have anything to do with whether you're a Christian. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're a Christian. So the real question is not whether you're nasty or nice as your initial starting point in life, but rather whose kingdom are you living in? Whose kingdom are you living in? See, the scriptures teach us that every single human being turns away from God. That's the essence of sin. We turn away from God to self. And we make ourselves the kings of our own kingdoms, the lords of our own lives. And therefore, there really is only two options. Either you're living for yourself and for your own kingdom, or you're living for Jesus and for his kingdom. And whether you're nasty or nice, what you need is to be turned. You need to be turned from living for self to turning and living for God. You need to undergo this radical transformation from the inside out from living as if you're the king of your own kingdom, the master of your own universe, the center of your own life, to submitting to Jesus as the true king and living under his kingdom rather than your own. And that's what it means when Jesus says to repent and believe. To repent and believe, those are just two sides of the same coin. They always go together. You repent and you believe. We often think that the word repentance is a feeling word. Well, you're just supposed to feel really bad about what you've done. But actually, it's not a feeling word. It's a thinking word. The word repent literally means to change your mind. It means to do a 180-degree turn in your thinking. You turn away from self towards God. And that is what makes all the difference. See, regardless of where you fall in that specter, you might be living as the king of your own kingdom, the lord of your own life. But one way or another, we're all trying to find some kind of value, source of meaning or purpose or significance in our lives on our own through what this world alone has to offer, which means at the end of the day, we're just trying to save ourselves. We're not looking to God to be our Lord and Savior. We're trying to be the Lord and Savior of our own lives. And how do we often do that? Well, we might say, well, I need some ultimate source of value, meaning, or purpose in my life, so I'm going to throw myself into meaningful work I want to work for a mission-driven organization. I'm going to change the world through my vocation. Or we might say we're, we're looking for value through romantic love or through close personal relationships with friends and family. If you're a more progressive type, you might say, well, the way in which I'm going to find value in life is by expressing my individuality. And in fact, I might even need to transgress certain boundaries in order to be true to my authentic self. Or if you're a more conservative type, you might say, the way in which I find value is by reaching this standard in my mind, 
And if I could reach that standard, well, then I can prove that I'm acceptable. I'm acceptable through my moral effort. But you see, regardless of your starting point, regardless of your outlook on life, you are the Lord and Savior of your own existence. You're just trying to save yourself one way or another. And so my only question to you is, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? See, to be a Christian means you turn away from self towards Jesus and you say, you are the only Lord and Savior. There is no value. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no freedom. There is no acceptance. There's no joy. There's no contentment apart from you. And therefore, I accept you. I accept you and what you have done for me. I rely on your perfect life your substitutionary death, your powerful resurrection from the grave as the only way for me to discover my true authentic self, the only way for me to ever be accepted by God, I yield. I yield to you as the king. I submit. I submit to you, to, to your word, to your ways, to your will, and I'll follow you forever. See, that's what it means to repent and believe. Now, I didn't realize this until preparing for this sermon this week, but in the past I didn't always understand why Mark in his gospel immediately describes the, the call of the first few disciples after Jesus announces the, the gospel of the kingdom. And I realize the reason why he puts it here is because this is what repentance looks like. He's giving us a picture of repentance. And notice the disciples are not here feeling really bad about the lives that they've lived. They're not trying to clean up their act or amend their ways. No, but they leave everything, and that's the point. They experience this dramatic turning. They turn from self to Jesus, and they leave everything. They leave their nets. They leave their father in the boat with the hired servants. They leave everything behind. Look, they're leaving behind their livelihood, their means of making a living. They're leaving behind their career, which was their sense of purpose. They leave behind the source of significance and security in life. They not only leave behind their most prized possession, their nets and their boats, but they leave behind their most intimate relationships, their father. Now, of course, this does not describe an utter and complete separation because in this very same gospel, we'll see these same disciples will go fishing again. They will see their families again. But the point is that they undergo this radical transformation. They make this decisive turn from self to Jesus. And you see, that is why it really doesn't matter where you are on that horizontal scale. What really matters is where you are on the vertical axis. It doesn't matter where you are on that scale of human niceness to, or nastiness to niceness. What matters is where you are in relationship to God. Are you living for self or are you living for Jesus? Are you living for your kingdom or are you living for Jesus' kingdom? Have you turned from self to Jesus? Are you connected to God? Is his power now operative in your life? Is it flowing in and through you? Because that's what will make the ultimate difference in the world. Those people on the higher end of the scale, they might only be there because they benefit from better genes or a better childhood or a better upbringing or they just have a better temperament or personality and it's so easy for them to feel superior and to look down on people who cannot get their act together but where you are on that scale makes no difference in God's mind all that matters is whether or not you're connected to him and if you're connected to him that'll change everything you could be just one and a half on that scale 
But as soon as God's spirit is flowing in and through you, you are going to blow past everybody else on that scale eventually. It might take a really long time. But eventually you'll be off the scale because you have no idea what God will do in and through you if you are connected to his living power. You have no idea who you'll become when he finishes his work in you. Now, prior to this moment, you might have thought you were a Christian, but maybe now you're not so sure. Maybe now you're beginning to have second thoughts. You might attend church. You might read your Bible on occasion. You might even pray to God when you're in times of trouble. You might know a lot about Jesus, but as you stop and think about it, you realize you've never really made that turn. You've never actually turned from self to Jesus. You really are still the Lord of your own life. You're still establishing your own kingdom, not his And if that's the case, then do not smother your conscience. But listen, your conscience might be telling you something that is true. Stop and ask yourself, have you responded to the summons of Jesus? I like the story of the artist who created a a life-size sculpture of Jesus. And people from all over the world came around to see it. And they, they walked all, all around it. They wanted to see it from, from every angle. But there was something about this sculpture that eluded them. They co- couldn't quite figure it out. And so then they asked the sculptor, well, what is the best position from which to view this life-size sculpture of Jesus? And the artist says, you have to kneel. You have to kneel. The only way you see him rightly is from your knees. But why would you ever do that? Why would you ever bend your knee to Jesus? Well, you have to see that though he is the world's true king who has come to rescue us and deliver us because of his great love for you, he didn't run away from danger. No, he ran right into the danger. He ran right to the cross in order to do for you what you could never do for yourself by sheer grace. And when you see that, that's what melts you. And that's when you yield to him. That's when you submit to him and you say, you're the king and I am not. I will submit to your word, your ways, your will rather than my own. And I'll follow you wherever you go and I will live for you forever. So have you done that? Now is the chance for you to turn. And if you decide to turn, don't keep it to yourself. Tell somebody else. Tell me. Make it official. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter says, not only repent and believe, but repent and be baptized. Make it official. Be baptized. Be brought into the church and learn what it means now to grow as a Christian, now that you really have made that decisive turn. But others of you, you might say, well, I'm a Christian, and I repented once. I remember... Years ago, I was at a summer camp, it was a mountaintop experience, and I said the sinner's prayer, I gave my life to Jesus, or another person might say, well, I remember, I had to repent back in November when I did this really stupid thing, but otherwise, I'm good. You know, I'm living my life, I'm doing the Christian thing. But if you think that that's a life of repentance and faith, then you don't get it at all. When Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses and then nailed them on the Wittenberg door to kick off the Reformation, do you know what the very first thesis was? Of course you know, you remember this, right, from European history. What was the very first thesis? All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. 
It's not as if you repent once and then never again. No, repentance is a way of life. And this is actually how you make progress in the Christian life. Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. You never move past it from beyond that to something else. No, this is actually the engine. This is the motor. This is the dynamic that drives the Christian life. You can think of two pistons, repentance and faith. As one goes down, the other comes up. And as repentance and faith, repentance and faith becomes your daily practice. That's what turns the crankshaft and propels the engine. That's how you grow as a Christian, by living a life of daily repentance and faith. So every day you have to turn. Because every day we're drawn back into living for ourselves in our own kingdom. So every day we have to stop and ask ourselves, where am I living for my own will? Where am I pursuing my own ways? And I have to yield, I have to surrender, I have to submit once more. And as I do, to the extent that I do, that's when God's power is unleashed in my life. That's how you tap into it. And that is what will take you far off the scale. And you see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because in every other religion, a person would say, well, I would be willing to repent of the bad things that I do. I can own up to that. But only a Christian will repent not only of the bad things that they do, but also the good things that they do for all the wrong reasons. Because as you dare to look underneath the surface, you realize that oftentimes the motivation for why you do the good things that you do is really just to save yourself. Really just to establish your own kingdom. Really just to find some kind of source of meaning and value and purpose in your life on your own through what this world alone has to offer rather than through Jesus. Only a Christian repents not only of the bad things that they do but even the good things that they do for all the wrong reasons. So lay your deadly doings down down at Jesus' feet and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. The purpose of Christianity is not to make you nice. It's to make you new. And Christianity is not good advice. It is good news. It's a proclamation. It's a promise. And it is the power of God unleashed in your life. And that is the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father God, we ask that regardless of whatever our starting points might be, that you might enable us to turn, to turn from self and from our own kingdoms and to rely on Jesus and his kingdom. May your power unleashed in the world flow in and through us so that by your sheer grace, we might become the people that you have destined us to be far beyond anything we ever could have imagined. We ask that you would do that work in us by your grace and through your Holy Spirit's power. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.